Good morning, faith family. I am so excited to be here with you this morning. Thank you for joining us for worship today. If we will go ahead and open up your Bibles to Genesis 3, as we'll be continuing in our The Story of God sermon series here this morning. Now, before we get to today's text, we kind of need to catch up a little bit on where we've been in Genesis. So like, if this wasn't a sermon series, if this was more like a television series, this is the moment where you would hear a voiceover that would say, previously on, and then you would see like a smash of clips of stuff that's happened in previous episodes that catch us up to where we are, okay? So here we are approaching today and we hear, previously on, the story of God. And there's nothing on the screen, but you hear a voice and it says, let there be light. And all of a sudden smash cut to the picture of a beautiful garden. And you hear the voice speak again. It says, let us make man in our image. And you see Adam being formed out of the dust and you see Eve being brought to Adam. And then you hear the voice speak once again saying, you are free to eat from any tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then we see the tree and we see a serpent and the serpent speaks and the serpent says, did God really say? And then the serpent says, no, you will not surely die. And then we see Eve take the fruit and she eats. We see her hand the fruit to Adam and he eats and their eyes grow wide and they look at one another and then they look away in shame. And then the last picture we get is them sewing together leaves in order to try to create coverings for themselves. And that catches us up to where we pick up the story today here in Genesis 3. So if you will, follow along with me as we read verses 8 through 15. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze. And they hid from the Lord among the trees of the garden. So the Lord God called out to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Then he asked, who told you that you were naked? Did you eat from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man replied, the woman you gave to be with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate. So the Lord God asked the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you were cursed more than any livestock and more than any wild animal. You will move on your belly and eat dust all the days of your life. I will put hostility, hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. So last week's episode, if you will, featured only three characters, right? We had the serpent, we had the man, we had the woman. We had Satan, the enemy of God, and Adam and Eve. God was mentioned last week, but he didn't play any kind of direct role in the events, even though this is his story. After all, we've even entitled this sermon series, The Story of God. But now as we pick up in this week's episode, God shows up on the scene. His beloved, the pinnacle of creation that have been given his perfect garden, provided everything that they have needed. They have now corrupted that creation. Man and woman, Adam and Eve, they have rebelled and there are going to be 
consequences. But what will those consequences be? Now that God is showing up, how is he going to react? What is he going to do? Well, the first thing we see God do is this. God comes. God comes. He comes walking in the garden, we read. And this word used here for walking, it's the same word that is translated elsewhere as dwelling when it comes to the tabernacle of God. Because you see, this garden that he had put here on earth, it wasn't just a pretty place for Adam and Eve to live. It was at the heart of the cosmic temple of all of creation that God brought into existence so that he could dwell there in relationship and fellowship and love with his creation, with his people. And that's what he is doing here on this day. He is dwelling, he is walking among his creation. And the implication is this, that this is something that has been a regular occurrence. This isn't the first time God has done this. This is something that was regularly enjoyed by both the creator and the creation, that God would come and walk with them and dwell among them. But of course, now the relationship has changed that inherent trust that existed between the creator and the creation, it's been tried and it's been broken. And God knew this was the case. But still, he came. He walked there among them. Do not miss the mercy, grace, and love that is exhibited in this act. God is the party that has been wronged. He's the one that has been betrayed. He has every right to turn his back on them. He has every right to remain where he is, waiting for them who have wronged him to come to him to make amends, to seek out reconciliation. In fact, he has every right to do worse than that. He has every right to destroy everything that is and just to start over anew. But that's not what God does. He doesn't write them off. Instead, he comes to them. He comes near to those who have rebelled against him. Those who, for all intents and purposes, have now become his enemy. He comes to them. Okay, well, so what do Adam and Eve then do? They're the representatives of all humankind. How do they respond? Well, in this way, after God comes, humankind hides. Humankind hides. They hear God walking in the garden. They hear him coming near and they run away. Why? Why would they do that? It's because of their guilt. It's because of their shame. They know that they have done wrong. And the same feeling that has driven their feeble attempts to stitch together leaves in order to cover their shame is now driving them in their feeble attempts to run away and hide from God. And frankly, we all know what this is like. Think about when you were younger, when you were a child, and you're at home and you do something really terrible and you're getting in trouble with your mom but then she pulls out one specific phrase. 
and it is just wait until your father gets home and the fear of God enters your heart. (laughs) And you go about the rest of your time as normally as you can until you hear the car pulling in the driveway and the garage door begins to open. And what do you do? You make yourself real scarce. Like whatever you can do, like you don't wanna be around whenever he walks in the door. And that's the kind of reaction that Adam and Eve are, happening, are having here. They're trying to hide from God and they're doing it there in the garden. All these fruit bearing plants and trees that God has specifically put there for them to enjoy. They're now the places of which they are trying to use to hide their shame. It was meant for their blessing now it's being used in their corruption. But of course, there is no hiding from God, right? Like, we know that. Remember, he's omniscient. He literally knows all things, everything. He's clearly aware, not only of what Adam and Eve have, have done, but actually where they are there in the garden. And so what does God do next? Well, God calls. God calls. And he begins by calling out to them. He says, where are you? Now, we're not meant to read that question thinking that God doesn't know. He does. But here he is calling out to Adam and Eve with the implication of he's trying to call them, not only out to them, but he's trying to call them out from hiding call them out from their running away back to himself. And after he calls out with that question, where are you? Adam immediately responds. Now this isn't explicitly clear here in the text, but the impression is that there wasn't a lot of lag time between God's question and Adam's answer. Uh, Just last weekend, um, Story and Haven had one of their friends over. We were kind of watching her on Saturday night. And at one time, they ended up playing hide and seek in the house. And Haven was the seeker. So Story and their friend had hidden in other places in the house. And um, seeking is not necessarily Haven's strong suit. And so he, his strategy was to kind of walk around the main floor for a minute and then come to wherever Liza and I were and ask us if we had seen them. He wanted us to rat them out, which we refused to do. And so then he came up with a new strategy is all of a sudden we hear him yell out, if I say A, you say B, A. (laughs) In silence. Story and their friend were like too smart for that strategy. But that's kind of a picture of what's happening here. God says, where are you? And Adam just says, oh, here I am. Let me answer you. And so either like Adam is super bad at hide and seek or it means that God's already right there where he is. When God comes, he comes near. He knows where Adam is and he comes to right where he's trying to hide and gently ask, where are you? Just in order to get Adam to respond. Because you see, when God is calling out to them, it's not just so that 
they know that he's there. And he's not just trying to call them out from their hiding. He's also trying to call out their sin. That's why after Adam responds by saying, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, that he then continues his calling and asking, who told you that you were naked? Did you eat from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? Again, does God know that they've eaten from the tree? Yes. He is trying to get Adam to come forward with that information, to confess, to bring his sin and his wrongdoing and his brokenness to the only one that can do anything about it. He is calling out their works of darkness, trying to get them to bring it into the light, trying to expose them. When I was in college, I had my first experience of being in some regular counseling and therapy. I was dealing a lot with anxiety and panic attacks and things like that. And so found a good Christian counselor at our church and spent a lot of time working with him. And one day after we'd had a few sessions together, I walked in and uh, he decided to meet me in a room that had a chalkboard. And he handed me a piece of chalk and he said, I want you to begin listing out all the things that you have to do in your week. Everything that you're worried about, everything that you're stressed about, activities, jobs, school, relationships, whatever they might be. And so as he talked, I just started writing. And I'm writing and writing. And he's keeping me distracted enough and I'm not too focused on what I'm writing. It's just, we are making a list. And he's asking the right questions to get, and we are filling up this chalkboard. And then he says, I want you to take a step toward that board. I want you to stand as close as you can to it, as if your nose is about to touch it. And I did that, and then he continued with the session, talking to me a little bit while I just stood there against that chalkboard. And then he said, okay, now I want you to take some steps back so that now you can see what all is up there. And he said, this is what we're trying to do as we begin here is you've got all this stuff going on inside you that you don't know how to deal with, that you don't know what to do about. We've got to get it out of there, out here, so that we can see it, and then we can begin to figure out what we need to do about it. That's what God is doing here with Adam and Eve. He's trying to call out their sin. Get it out. Bring it to me so that we can both see what's been done but also we can begin to then look at what I can do about it in order to help you, in order to fix you, in order to redeem you. But even as God is lovingly calling them out from their hiding, lovingly calling out their, them, calling out their sin, how is it that they respond? Well, humankind blames. That's how. Humankind blames. God gets directly at the heart of the issue. Did you eat from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And there's really only one acceptable answer. Yes. I did. Yes. That's not the answer Adam gives, right? He's caught red-handed. It's like when you've got a little kid and you, you tell them you, you cannot have any more candy, okay? You cannot have any more. And you go away and you come back in the room and they're covered in chocolate. It's on their hands, it's on their face, they're chewing. 
Their teeth are brown, they've eaten so much of it. And you ask them, did you eat some more candy? And they say, no, I don't know. Deny it. Like Adam's caught red-handed here, but he doesn't take responsibility. He's still looking for a way out, and he thinks that his way out is to shift the focus off of himself. So how does he respond to God's question? Says the man replied, the woman you gave to be with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate. It wasn't me, it was Eve. It's her fault. Boy, have we come a long way from this one at last, this bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Like the honeymoon is over, right? There's gonna be some problems at home after this. Uh Uh-uh, not me, her fault. But really, there's a double attribution of blame here. It gets even worse, because Adam is is not just blaming Eve, he's saying, the woman, gosh, doesn't even call her by name, the woman you gave to me. God, in some ways, if you look at this from a certain perspective, it's kind of your fault. You're to blame as well. She's the one that got, she gave me the fruit. What was I supposed to do? I didn't want to be rude. And you're the one that gave her to me. Why would you put this temptress beside me? But of course, that's not who God made Eve to be at all. She is a helper, a perfect helpmate designed specifically for him. And yet Adam is trying to twist the goodness of God. He is now in this moment on the side of the enemy, of the serpent. That's what the serpent was doing earlier in Genesis 3. Did God really say, no, you won't die, trying to get them to question God's goodness and provision. Why would he give you all of this stuff in the garden but keep this one thing from you? Can he really be that good? And here Adam is questioning God's goodness again. I mean, you really messed things up. Like you, you gave her to me and then she, she did this. Why? Why would you do that? How could you? And even her response, she doesn't do much better too. She is also trying to shift the blame from her. She doesn't try to shift it back to Adam, but rather to the serpent. God looks at Eve and asks the woman, Why, what is this you have done? And she replies, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Now it's important to note here that neither Adam nor Eve are lying, right? They're trying to shift blame away from themselves, but they are not lying about what has occurred. They both end their statements with, I ate. They're admitting the rebellion, they're admitting the sin, they're admitting the breaking of God's command. And then the way that they describe it is also true. The woman you gave me, she gave me the fruit and I ate, that's true. Earlier in Genesis three, Eve gives him the fruit and he eats. Eve says the serpent deceived me and I ate, that's also true. We see the serpent deceiving her and that results in her eating. 
And there's an important lesson for us here, and that's this. Simply confessing sin is not the same as repentance. Simply confessing our sin is not the same as turning away from our sin. You know, say I hear a commotion coming from our living room. There's obviously a disagreement happening and voices are getting raised and now there's shouting. And now there's the sound of hitting and now there's the sound of crying. And both Story and Haven come into the room and Haven's the first one to let me know that clearly a line has been crossed and harm has been done. And he says, Story hit me. And I look at Story and she says, well, Haven hit me first. And I look back at Haven and he says, well, she wouldn't share the blanket with me. And I look at Story and she says, well, he kept putting his feet on me. And like, we could just keep going back and forth this way. But in this, there's no admittance of wrongdoing. There's no ownership of what they've done wrong. They're not denying that they hit. They're not denying these other things that they wouldn't share the blanket, that they were putting their feet on their sister. They're not denying those things, but they're also not accepting that responsibility. There's no responsibility. There's no sorrow. There's no concern. There's no turning away. Rather, it's just what they are saying as they are trying to justify the wrongdoing. They're trying to say, it was right for me to do wrong because of these circumstances. And that's what Adam and Eve are attempting to do as well. What else was I supposed to do and eat? Eve gave it to me and you gave me her. What else was I supposed to do but eat? The serpent deceived me. That's not what the justification of sin looks like. It's not trying to come up with a right reason for you to sin. Justification from sin, it means that you are forgiven of that sin and you are cleansed and you are made right even though you have done wrong. And they're missing that that's what God is wanting to accomplish in their lives. He's calling them out of their hiding, their sin into the light so that repentance can occur, not mere admittance. He wants them to turn away from the sin because they are broken and sorrowful over it. He wants them to come to him for his forgiveness, for his restoration, for his redemption, for his justification instead of them trying to justify it for themselves. But instead, they blame others and they miss the blame that rightfully belongs to them. Their guilt led to shame and that shame led them to blame. When in reality, the realization of their guilt was supposed to lead them to see their need for forgiveness, which ultimately would then lead them to the one the only one who could offer them that forgiveness. So then what does God do next? How does he respond to their blame? Well, God curses and condemns. The consequences for their actions don't begin with punishment. Begins with God coming near, with God calling them out. But then here's where the consequences get real. He judges the wrong that's been done and he doles out the punishment, the consequences for their crimes. And this is a just and a righteous and a good thing for him to do. In the case of Adam and Eve, it's an extension of his love and his care for them, of leading them back 
into loving fellowship with him. And Pastor Matt will get more to the specifics of what he has to say to them next week. But for us, for the rest of our time, we're gonna focus on who God begins with, which is the serpent. Maybe another way to think about is the one who is using the serpent here, Satan, the enemy, the evil one. And here God is going in order. Satan deceived, Eve ate and gave, then Adam ate and rebelled. And so he's beginning here with the serpent. And he looks at the serpent and says, because you have done this, you are cursed more than any livestock and more than any wild animal. And this stands in stark contrast to how the serpent is described earlier in Genesis 3. Earlier we read that now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals. Depending on what translation of scriptures you have, it might say that the serpent was more crafty than all the wild animals. And those words cunning and crafty for us, they kind of carry with them a a negative connotation. You know, what they mean, if you look them up in the dictionary, is that you're really smart and skilled at being deceitful. They're the kind of words you use to describe like a Bond villain. Goldfinger is cunning and crafty. But the original word that's used in Hebrew here, it doesn't necessarily carry that same negative connotation. Yes, it means smart and skilled, but it could really go either way. It doesn't mean that you have to use them in order to lie. After all, the, the serpent was part of God's good creation. The enemy, Satan, at one time was one of God's created angels. But as Satan does with all things, he seeks to corrupt the things of God. What God intends for good, Satan uses for evil. And so now, rather than being craftier or more cunning than all the animals, since he used it for deceit, he'll now be cursed. And we are given pictures of what that curse looks like. God continues and says, you will move on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. Now, this is not meant to give us a picture of a certain creature that existed that had like legs. And after this, God like took the legs away and now it slithers around on its belly. That's not like, this is a serpent. Like God created snakes when he created all the other animals of the field and this is one of them. And snakes don't necessarily eat dust, right? Like they eat all kinds of other things. I I don't know what, my son could probably tell us, but you know, they eat other stuff. They're not like eating dirt for their nutrition, okay? But God is using this picture here to speak of the serpent, to say that you will move on your belly and you will eat dust, dust all the days of your life because it's a picture of him being brought low, of him being lower than he could possibly be, of him being humbled, or maybe a better word for it is him being humiliated, him being judged, him being defeated, him ultimately being condemned. Because this is what God is getting at in the next verse by saying that he will strike your head. That the ultimate promise, the ultimate picture of this condemnation, of this being brought low, that's going to follow along with the existence of crawling on your belly and eating dust is going to be that your head is going to be crushed. You're done. But before God gets there, he pronounces first that there is going to be hostility. Hostility. 
there's going to be conflict between the serpent and the woman Eve and between their offspring. You know, God has more to say about what's going to befall Adam and Eve as a result of their sin. But here in his speaking to the serpent, his curse towards the serpent, it has implications for Adam and Eve and thus for the rest of mankind. It means that humankind struggles and suffers. Humankind struggles and suffers. This part of Genesis 3, it's not a fairy tale in order to provide us a reason that some women don't like snakes. Like that's not the lesson we're supposed to walk away with. There's hostility between the serpent and the woman because it's a picture of there being conflict between those that are a part of the children of God faithful to him and those who are not, who are working actively against the will of God and therefore are children of the enemy. That's the picture here, not just here between this serpent and this woman, but between their offspring, all those who would come from Eve, but would be those who are the people of God, his children, and then those who would be the offspring of the serpent, those who were still created by God, but instead are living their lives not for God, thinking that maybe they're living them for themselves, but ultimately discovering in the end that they are actually living them for the enemy and for his plans to deceive all those around him. There has been, there is, and there always will be continuing conflict between the children of Eve and the children of the serpent. That's why we struggle in this world in so many different ways. And this isn't just a truth for us today. We see it continuously throughout scripture. And just the next chapter, we're going to see it in Cain and Abel. Where Abel is, takes on the role as the offspring of Eve, working on the, in obedience to the will of God. But Cain takes on the role as the offspring of the serpent. Yes, he is the son of Eve, but he is working against the will of God according to what he wants to do, or what he thinks is what he wants to do, ultimately fulfilling what the enemy is trying to accomplish in this world. We see it and the conflict of Moses and the Israelites with Pharaoh and the Egyptians, a people who actually revered serpents and used them in their iconography, but hostility between the people of God and the offspring of the serpent. We see it in David and Goliath, Goliath whose armor is described as scaly, like that of a snake, who are literally in direct conflict with one another and whom David strikes on the head. We see it in the conflict between Esther and Haman, one who is the offspring of Eve, trying to save her people who God has put there for such a time as this because Haman, fulfilling the role of the offspring of the serpent, is seeking to destroy the children of God, Eve's offspring. As we like to say today, the struggle is real. And it often results in suffering and very real hurt, even in death. We are currently watching on our news feeds and our social media feeds a war unfold between Russia and Ukraine. We can see images of what that conflict looks like. Not just of light struggle, but of real pain, of real hurt, of real tragedy of real death. 
And that's the picture of the hostility that exists here and the suffering that is the result. It's peoples at war as an extension of the greater battle that exists between God and Satan. But we'll ultimately find a good resolution according to God's will because even as we struggle and we suffer, we do not experience these things without hope. Now, even in his time on earth, Jesus echoed God's promise of hostility when he said in John 16, he said, you will have suffering in this world. But he didn't stop there. He said, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Here in Genesis 3, God curses and condemns the serpent, but that curse and condemnation, it has implications for us all in the hostility that we have with the enemy, yet we have hope because while humankind struggles and suffers, Jesus crushes and conquers. God ends his words to the serpent with the following promise. He says, he will strike your head and you will strike his heal. This is where we learn that when God is speaking of the offspring of the woman, he doesn't have just a big group of people in mind. He has someone very, very specific in mind. Someone about whom Paul writes in Galatians 4.4, God sent his son born of a woman, born under the law, and about whose purpose John writes in 1 John 3.8 when he says the son of God was revealed for this purpose, to destroy the devil's work. Genesis 3.15 is often referred to as the proto-euangelion. It's just a fancy phrase that means first gospel or the first telling of the good news because this is the first time that this promise appears, this promise of good news, that one will come, an offspring of the woman who will ultimately defeat the enemy and rescue God's people. There's a piece of art that comes to my mind whenever I think about this first gospel that's mentioned here in Genesis 3.15. I wanna share it with you. Here you see Eve on the left, her head bowed, her eyes downcast. Seems to me like a, a look of shame or worry or con intense concern on her face. She's holding the fruit that's missing a bite, the symbol of her rebellion against her creator. And there among her feet, she's entangled by the serpent. He has his grip on her. But even as she looks down in shame, her eyes are focused there on Mary, on Mary's expectant belly, as she tentatively reaches out her other hand toward it. And then you have Mary looking directly at Eve's face the hint of a smile and a caress from her hand. You know, she grasps Eve's other hand there on her belly. And there at the bottom, you see Mary's foot is on the head of the serpent. Not as a picture of this being something that Mary accomplishes, but as a picture of the promise that the one she bears will ultimately fulfill this first gospel in Genesis 3. 15. These two women are separated by centuries, by millennia of generations, yet they are each part of God's gracious plan and promise that he put into action 
here in Genesis 3.15. You know, the Bible loves genealogies. Lots and lots of books of scripture carry different genealogies. And there's a purpose behind them. So let's know where these people come from. What is the line that's going? What's the line that's continuing? And one of those reasons is so that we can ultimately see this fulfillment, this offspring of Eve. And you can directly chart this through. If you begin here very soon in Genesis 5, you can find a genealogy that takes you all the way from Adam to Noah and his sons. And if you jump over to Genesis 11, you'll see a genealogy that carries you directly from Shem, one of Noah's sons, all the way to Abraham. Then go to the very beginning of the New Testament, Matthew chapter 1. And we pick up with the genealogy that starts with Abraham and carries it all the way through Joseph, the husband of Mary, the mother of Christ. And this is just a small indication that all of Scripture, following Genesis 3.15, is building a picture of this offspring of Eve, this promised one who would crush and conquer the enemy, though it certainly would not be easy for him. Remember, not only will he strike the head of the serpent, but the serpent will strike his heel as well. And this may seem kind of one-sided. After all, what's gonna be like a worse blow? One to the head or one to the foot? But think about the picture that's being used here. It's between a human and a serpent. Now, if a human wants to take down a serpent, yeah, they're gonna crush the head. But how does a serpent ultimately take down a human? It's a strike towards some area around the foot, possibly the heel. You see, Jesus could promise us that we would have suffering in this world because he experienced suffering in this world as a result of the fallings that, that entered this world from that first sin, from Satan's deception and his ongoing work. We talked about that conflict that we can see between the offspring of Eve and the offspring of the serpent. And we can see it in Jesus' life beginning with his temptation in the desert when it is literally a battle between him and Satan there. Like he knows what that direct conflict looks like, but it's not just suffering, it's not just struggle, it ultimately leads to his death. And that moment that Jesus took that last breath on the cross, it appeared that the enemy's strike had won out. But Jesus, the son of God and offspring of Eve, didn't die for him. He died for you, for me, for us, because of our sin nature, because we were offsprings of the serpent, but he paid the penalty of our sins so that we could become the offspring of Eve. He bore our consequences so we could become the children of God by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, God the Son. And he did not stay dead. He rose. And in doing so, he began the finalization of his ultimate defeat of the enemy, which will be fully realized upon his return. God graciously gave the Apostle John a vision of what that would look like, of what the end of days here on earth would appear like in a vision that he gave him. And as part of that vision, John begins to describe what this ultimate defeat is going to look like. 
if you flip over to the book of Revelation, or we'll have this on the screen, to chapter 12, this is what we read in verses one through five. A great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in labor and agony as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven. There was a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns, and on its head were seven crowns. Its tail swept away a third of the stars in heaven and hurled them to the earth. And the dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that when she did give birth, it might devour her child. She gave birth to a son, a male who was going to rule all nations with an iron rod. And her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Here you have a child of a woman, the promised son, the dragon, the serpent there waiting to devour him, but he does not win. And the child is called up to God to reign with him on his throne. And then we get a picture of the outcome that soon follows just down in verses nine through 10 where we read, so the great dragon was thrown out, the ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the one who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to earth and his angels with him. And then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have now come because the accuser of our brother and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been thrown down has been brought low, has been judged, who has been condemned, who has been defeated. It is a done deal. Even in the midst of the hostility that we may experience in our lives in this world, the outcome is secure. Jesus wins. And for all of us who put our faith in him, we share in his victory and we will reign with him forever and ever. So what does that mean for us today? Well, if you are one who have not yet put your faith in him, my encouragement to you is to stop hiding. Stop hiding. God has come near to you in sending his son, Jesus, and he is calling you, calling you to come near to him, calling out your sin to bring it into the light because he loves you. He took on your condemnation and is the only one who can help you through your struggles and your suffering and give you the victory that he won for you. So repent, turn away from your sin and put your trust in him. And then if you are a follower of Christ, don't let sin reign in you. Walk in repentance and faith, live in that promised victory and join him in his work of calling those out of the darkness into the light.